0: Well, this morning, I would like to continue in a series that I started last year on the Beatitudes. And uh, you may recall that the Beatitudes are a kind of update of the Ten Commandments that were preached by Jesus in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which appears in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount is the core of the gospel, amplified in the letters and the epistles. And you can think of the Sermon on the Mount as sort of the play-by-play, and the epistles and the gospel or the letters are the uh, color commentary, if you're into sports analogies. The first of the Beatitudes is found in Matthew chapter five, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to have a proper perspective of who I am before a holy God. The second beatitude, found in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And mourning, we talked about, as having an awareness of my own sin, uh, along with, obviously, the other aspects of grieving, but it has to do with having a proper perspective of my sin before a holy God. The third beatitude is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, meekness is gentleness, and giving preference to one another in honor. The fourth Beatitude is found in verse 6 of chapter 5. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Righteousness, you may recall, is a product of being poor in spirit and mourning over sin and gentle. Righteousness, this Beatitude, is a transition from the first three to the, last, to the rest of them. So these three characteristics encourage being merciful and being pure in heart and a peacemaker. Righteousness is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, and we saw patterns of that through the rest of the three chapters. Last time, two weeks ago, it was my privilege to speak on the subject, uh, the fifth beatitude, blessed uh, are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, verse 7 of chapter 5. And the purest expression of mercy is forgiveness. And um, that's hard sometimes. And, so, um, and then the, this week, this morning, I'd like to continue the conversation and the Beatitudes on the sixth Beatitude, which is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I have a fondness for the English language, and I will warn you in advance, this discussion this morning is gonna involve some vocabulary. And it may be words that you're familiar with, but there may be some that you're not. And uh, you can impress your friends at the next party you get together with your with the new vocabulary. Several years ago, I was reading an article in a newspaper about a coach, a football coach, who was retiring. Uh, he was a high school coach and um, He um, was retiring after a long and successful career. And the writer of the article referred to this coach as a quintessential football coach. A quintessential football coach. That word, I'd heard it before, but I didn't really understand what it meant. And so I looked it up, and it appears that the uh, ancients believed at one time that all matter... Was consisted of four elements or four essences, air, water, fire, and earth, and they believed that there existed a fifth essence, quint meaning five, a fifth essence of which the angels were made. So the fifth essence was pure and undefiled, and to call something quintessential meant that it existed in its most pure form. We have a quintessential football coach over here, Dr. Matthew, and uh, I believe, and, uh, but it, t- the funny thing about using that word is that it's, it's intended to compliment the person, but to use the word toward any per- one person really is to diminish the word because nobody's perfect. Nobody is undefiled or unflawed. We all have flaws. So, in fact, employing the word quintessential to any person diminishes the power of the word. But that's okay because the intention is to elevate, to, to compliment that person, to say somebody is a quintessential businessman or a quintessential teacher or a quintessential pastor. Those are things that are intended to, to complement the person. So we, we use the word, at least the sports writer did, in that article. Number one in your notes to be Pure in heart is to be a quintessential Christian. A quintessential Christian. This is the standard that the Bible describes for disciples of Jesus Christ in Matthew 5.28. Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. The passage, coincidentally, happens to be in the Sermon on the Mount. Now we know that this is an impossibly high standard. The Apostle Paul struggled himself with this standard when he said in, um, in Romans, the good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. Went on that, on that uh, strain for several verses. King Solomon in Ecclesiastes several times when he dedicated the temple, and in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, there's not a righteous person on the earth who always does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes seven twenty. John in uh, the epistle said if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and do not practice the truth or the truth is not in us. First John 1 8. So how do you bring together this standard of perfection and the fact that we have a sin nature that we're flawed and that we are prone to doing evil. How do you bring that together to become pure in heart number two in your notes God is the God of prevenient grace there's one of the, another one of those words prevenient grace what that means is that it is God is if whenever you confront God whenever, for, even for the first time God was already there John Wesley uh, used this word to describe the work of God in, the un- in drawing the unbeliever to himself It's the notion that any time a Christian encounters God, God is already there, prevenient. Several years ago, I was working on a project as a consultant at a bank. And I was talking about, in in my consulting practice, it was focused on work environments and getting people to get along. And the premise is that if people get along in any entity, a corporation, a company, even a family, a church, whatever, you fulfill your mission better. And we were able to demonstrate that with numbers. The companies increase profitability when their people get along with each other. And I was doing a, a, I often described my practices teaching Sunday school principles to business. And this particular week I was talking about forgiveness. And I was saying if you want to be an effective company, you need to practice the discipline of forgiveness with each other. Well, the information technology guy came up to me at the break. He said, that's crazy. I can't do that. How do you do that? I can't. There are people in my life that I just can't forgive. So I said, well, it's a conversation probably longer than what we're going to be able to do in a one-hour seminar. So I'll meet you with you in my house, and we can talk more about it. So I took him through Rick Warren's book, The Purpose-Driven Life. It was prominent at the time. And I started, we started talking about this book. I figured it would be something that would be easy to assimilate. And Warren, about the third chapter in his book, starts talking about the scriptures. He starts applying the scriptures to his teaching. And my friend stopped me He said, I, I don't believe the Bible. What if I don't believe the Bible? I said, well, then we need to back up. And I took him to... Um, Josh McDowell's book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and we went through the uh, teaching of McDowell in establishing the authority of Scripture. Many of the claims that McDowell makes in his book are, are sourced. He'll make a statement and then he'll establish a source where you can look it up from the original premise. And he wrote the book intentionally for students to, in high school and college who were writing papers, and he wanted to be able to give them a tool to source what they were saying about, um, about God and about the scriptures. Well, my friend, uh, most people, when they read McDowell's book, they'll skip over the footnotes. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Well, my friend wasn't like that. He looked up, not only looked up the footnotes, but he would look up the footnotes of the footnotes. And and to verify the statements that McDowell was making in his book. And he went through this process for several weeks. We'd meet together and talk about it. About a month's time, he came into my house, sat down in a chair in my living room, had my stack of books, put his hands on top in his lap. And he said flat out, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God based upon the teaching of the Scripture. It was an extraordinary moment. We reviewed the sinner's prayer and we talked about to to confirm his faith and his testimony. And then I asked him, well, what, what was it that brought you to this point? And he said, well, I analyzed it. I considered myself an intellectual. I analyzed the steps, I analyzed the process and came to this conclusion intellectually. I said, no, you didn't. Last night when I got to this point, several people in the congregation were nodding, no, you didn't. I'm not shaking your heads because that's not how it works. I took him to John chapter 6, verse 44, that says, no man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him. God is a God of prevenient grace, meaning if we seek him, We will find him because he's been there the whole time. Jeremiah Jeremiah 29, 13. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Our God is a God of prevenient grace. And just like his work in our lives when we come to the moment of salvation, he was there all the time. The same principle applies to the pursuit of pure in heart. God is there all the time. He is wooing us and drawing us to Himself. And so I'd like to talk about this morning a couple of principles um, about that. We call it sanctification. Sanctification is a word that we use to describe the process of becoming pure in heart. To be sanctified means to be holy or set apart. Before Jesus died on the cross, there's a powerful prayer in John 17 where He talks about. About, um, he, t- he talks about his ministry he prays for himself he prays about his relationship with god the father and then he prays for his disciples in the next section and then finally uh he he, he says i pray for those who have believed in me based upon their testimony meaning you and i in verse uh, 17 of john 17 he says sanctify them through your truth for your word is truth. It is Jesus' desire that we be made holy, that we be sanctified. In Paul's letters to the Christians and to the churches, he frequently refers to believers as sanctified in Jesus Christ. Here's an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in the time that I have remaining, I'd like to suggest for you a few disciplines that we can employ in pursuit of being pure in heart to become more spirit-filled, more sanctified. Number three in your uh, notes, to be pure in heart is to keep a loose grip on possessions a loose grip on positions. Paul poses a provocative question in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you have received it, why do you boast as though you had not? In his hour of calamity, Job stated, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's often used at funerals. Or consider the example, the compelling example of Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac in his old age. And God had promised to Abraham that through all, that Isaac would be a blessing to the whole planet. A- Abraham was rightfully proud of his son. But a, t- a passage comes, a story comes in Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham to do an odd thing. Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, to the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains that I will tell you about. So Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two young men with him and Isaac his son and split the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went to the place which God had told him. Can you imagine what might have been going through Abraham's mind? why would God want me to do this? He promised me that the world would be blessed through this young son. We have a clue into what Abraham might have been thinking in Hebrews chapter 11, where he says God was, he thought that perhaps God was going to raise him up, even from the dead. That's a possibility. But it still had to be a struggle for a father to sacrifice his son. Well, you know the, the story. Abraham prepares the altar, the wood, and puts his son on the altar for sacrifice, and God stays his hand. In verse 16 of Genesis 22, the story continues. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. In blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven. And as the sand which is upon the seashore, your children shall possess the gates of their enemies. What a cool picture, a word picture. Your children will possess the gates of their enemies. What do you have this morning that would cause you anxiety if somehow it were taken away from you? Your car, your house, your business, your job, your ministry even, your children. Now you say, well, I couldn't give up my children. I can't voluntarily relinquish my children. But the truth is, God is sovereign. They're already his, all of that is his. And so to give them up intentionally as as an act of the will is validating the sovereignty of God in your life that is already there. God didn't do this because he was some kind of vivisectionist, that he wanted to punish Abraham. He did it because he wanted Abraham to, to test. He wanted to test Abraham that there was nothing that separated God from his relationship with Abraham. Abraham was a wealthy man. God didn't have any problem with that. He knew that he valued his son Isaac above all. And that's why he tested him. What is it in your life that needs to be given to God? There was a missionary, story of a missionary who uh, took his faith uh, up the Amazon River in Brazil. And he had a boat and he would uh, sail up the river or down, I don't know which was, probably down, uh, going with the current. At any rate, he'd go along and he'd see people on the bank and so he'd pull over and go to the bank and talk to the people. And he had this method. If the people inquired about his boat, he would politely conclude the conversation, get back in the boat, and go continue down the river. But if they asked him about this big book that he carried under his arm, the Bible, then he would stop and he would talk to them about it. And as long as they maintained interest, He would continue the conversation telling them about the scriptures. And sometimes he would stay for days and sometimes for weeks or months. Periodically, when this happened, somebody would steal his boat. And so his response was typical. Well, it's God's boat. He must have a better use for it somewhere else. And when they stole it and he would tell them that, they would say, well, no, take the boat back from God because we don't want to steal from God. Sometimes it resulted, not always, in his getting his boat back. The people of God who would be pure in heart will assume the Amazon of, assume the attitude of Amazon Bill toward their possessions. Number four, in your notes to be pure in heart is to apprehend spiritual reality in the present, to apprehend spiritual reality in the present. Now, this is a mouthful. I, used, I struggled with the use of the word apprehend versus understand because it technically means the same thing. But apprehend is a bigger word. I can understand an algebraic equation, but I may not apprehend algebra. I can apprehend, I can understand, excuse me, enough Spanish language to order my breakfast, but I may not be able to apprehend or speak Spanish fluently. That's the difference. Apprehend is a bigger word. To be pure in heart is to apprehend spiritual reality in the present right here and now. To say that we apprehend the reality of salvation, we use the phrase, accept Jesus Christ in your heart. I've used that already today. Accept Jesus. But you know, do you realize that the Bible doesn't use that phrase anywhere in the Scriptures? The, the salvation is considered a gift. Uh, Ephesians says that it's a gift of God, not of works, and so it's certainly appropriate to use that phrase, but I wonder sometimes if we miss the meaning. I received, when I was with the hospital, we'd have uh, Christmas parties where you gave each other Santa Claus gifts, and uh, I would receive a gift. Most of the time it was useless and I would put it in a closet somewhere and re-gift it to somebody else in a subsequent Christmas year. So I had a cavalier attitude about the gift because it wasn't something really uh, meaningful to me personally. But when we, but when you look at the scriptures and they talk about salvation, what the word that is used is, is belief. When Paul spoke with the Philippian jailer and the jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? What was Paul's response? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Later in um, in Romans, Paul says, with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. Accepting a gift is more passive than belief belief requires action. If I believe that it's going to rain, I'll take uh, an umbrella. Well, maybe in Oregon, it's kind of iffy. If I believe it's going to be cold, I'll take a coat. My belief in something changes what I do. Accepting a gift can be more passive. Number A under four, to apprehend spiritual reality is to act on my belief. James Chapter 2 said, you believe there is one God and you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. But do you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Number B, under 4, Jesus taught that the physical reality and spiritual reality are the same thing. Are the same thing. When Jesus was speaking with the woman at the talking about worship, In John's gospel, he says, but the hour comes and is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him, John 4.23. When we worshiped this morning, we had a a transaction that included both our physical presence, acknowledging and giving worship to a, a God who exists in spirit. and we don't think anything about it in worship. Earlier in John chapter 3, one of my favorite passages in the the gospel is the story of Jesus with Nicodemus, and they're having a conversation about salvation. Jesus says, you must be born again. He uses that phrase, and and, uh, Nicodemus is confused. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? I love his honesty. He just wanted to know. And Jesus responds in verse 6. He said, that which is flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And he uses a metaphor, the wind. We see the, we, don't, we don't see the wind, but we see its effects. And that's like how things are with the Spirit to see spiritual things. We look with spiritual eyes. One is a manifestation of a physical reality and the other is of the Spirit. Jesus makes no distinction between the two. Number C, under four, the miracles of Jesus are an integration of spiritual and physical reality. There's a story of Jesus crossing a lake and he gets to the other side, and, and they bring to him a man who is sick with palsy. And Jesus says, Be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes are there, and they're saying, This man blasphemes, but who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus responds in chapter, Matthew chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 So that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick man with palsy, rise and take up your bed and go home. And so the man rose and went home. He, didn't, he He demonstrated that he was in control of both physical and spiritual dimensions. Number D, the Bible speaks of spiritual realm in present tense. As Christians, we're often tempted to think of spiritual things happening later it's after i die or it's after the rapture or it's or it's in heaven and sort of in the pie in the sky by and by but it's important i think to be in if we pursue if we desire to be pure in heart it's important that we consider the reality of the spiritual realm in the present through the inspiration of the holy spirit the writer of hebrews commands us in Hebrews 4:16, come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is not something that happened in the past, although I'm sure it did. But it's something, and it's not something we anticipate in the future. It's something we're right here and right now. Another passage in Hebrews; it's a little more spiritually oriented says in uh, Hebrews 12:22 you are come to the mount zion and unto the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven and to god the judge of all Hebrews 12:22 A lot of spiritual stuff there but you notice the first two words you are present tense there is an expectation that as we pursue god we become aware of a heavenly realm that you and I, I suspect, don't think about very often. Number E, under 4, we apprehend spiritual reality by faith. We apprehend spiritual reality by faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11, 1. The evidence of things not seen. Now, I wonder, in fact, I'm convinced that this passage isn't so much a definition of faith. It's more a demonstration of what faith does. Not so much what faith is, but what faith does. It's a clarification. Faith gives meaning and substance to the reality and reality to our hope. We're able to see with spiritual eyes how God has manifested himself in our lives and in our world and on our planet. Something important for Christians to do in the times we live in. Number F in your notes under four, there's no physical reality without spiritual reality. There is no physical reality without spiritual reality. I'm going to ask the next slide to be put up here. This is an image that everybody's seen. We know what it is. It's the atomic, the atomic structure, and it consists of protons, neutrons, and electrons, and those electrons are orbiting the nucleus or sometimes going through the nucleus of the atom. And this is the building block of everything that exists, how we understand about atomic theory. And I've wondered when I was first approached, what would happen if those electrons just decided to take off and go their own way? What is it A, that gives them the design to move in that orbit, and B, where do they get the energy? Where does the energy come from? Well, you say it comes from the sun like everything else, but what about way down in the planet? Where does the design and the energy come from for that atom? Because you know that if those electrons decided to take off and do their own thing, you and I would not exist we would be the composite of subatomic particles. This building, this town, this state, this country, this world would cease to exist. And so scientists have speculated on that question. I looked it up to see the current theory. When I took chemistry, nobody had a clue. And I wondered if things had changed. And I noticed in 1985, they're able to measure the power of molecular force between atoms, but they still, it's measured in nanograms, but they still don't know why any of that works that way. Some people refer to it as intramolecular force. That's actually the official name for that force that causes the electrons to move in that orbit. But some people, I believe some from faith and some perhaps facetiously refer to it as the Colossians force. The Colossians force found from this passage in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. who is the, Speaking of Jesus, Paul is speaking of Jesus when he says, "'Who is the image of the invisible God, "'the firstborn of all creation? "'For by him were all things created.'" that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and by him, all things are held together. Held together. That phrase occurs in the context of creation. Paul is talking about creation. He says Jesus not only created But think of this, creation is not just a one and done deal. Creation requires the ongoing manifestation of the presence and the power of God to sustain and to keep things together, to hold it together. I'll warn you in advance, if you think too long on that principle, it will blow your mind. It's an amazing thing to consider. The, the fact that the, that evil exists on the earth by the, by the grace of God, by the prevenient grace of God. Things that are happening on our planet continue to be made possible because God is gracious, because he continues to hold things together. It's astounding. Can I hear an amen on that? Amen. amen. Okay, so now you're thinking, okay, I get it. Um, the point being that, um, that there's, a similar, there's a reality of both a spiritual and a physical reality. To be pure in heart is to apprehend spiritual reality in the present. And why does it matter? So what? What difference does it make? In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, passage we have on the wall over in the discipleship room, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That is, they are not man-made. They are not physical. But mighty through God, through the pulling down of strongholds, both physical and spiritual. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. If we consider... The challenges in our life that is warfare, that is spiritual warfare, how would it affect how we approach things, how we think about things? If we consider spiritual battles, what if, for example, interpersonal conflict is a spiritual battle? What if politics is spiritual? What if we approach physical disease? as a spiritual issue or depression or personal disciplines like Bible reading and prayer or weight loss. Now we're getting close to home. What difference would it make if we equated the physical reality, the things that crushes into our, demands our attention through our five senses as just one part of the equation? equal to, and perhaps subservient to, spiritual reality? Would it change how we pray? Would it change how we spend our time? Would it change how we live our lives? When I enter a sustained period of prayer, my mind is flooded with distractions. And so I have, I have a, a discipline of writing things down. I'll have a tablet and uh, something, uh, I'll get a distraction of somebody I need to call, something I need to do, something I need to follow up on. It becomes a distraction in my, and detracts from my ability to focus. So I'll keep a note pad and a pen handy and I'll write it down and then I can relieve it from my mind. It would be easy to dismiss such distractions as a consequence of just being busy. But this is a spiritual battle. I have apprehended that. Satan doesn't want me to pray. Satan wants me to be distracted away from prayer to things in the physical world that would appear to be more pressing. But if by faith I sustain that discipline, keep my focus, particularly over time, the Spirit of God begins to speak to me in my mind. I listen with spiritual ears and I hear promptings about things that I am praying about. Oftentimes I will, I will hear solutions to problems that I hadn't considered before. I write them down on my little pad. I will hear rebuke for my attitude and for my kindnesses that I have failed to show. Jesus and I are sitting at a table like Revelation 3.20 each of us perhaps sitting there with a, an appropriate beverage, and we're talking about things that matter. We're talking about things in my life that are important. And we're talking about things that Jesus wants me to consider, wants me to do. In this practice of faith, I'm given a tangible expression of the spiritual. Uh, the evidence of things not seen. I have several other points. I've spent most of my time on this one. I, I don't have the time to elaborate. I could do uh, another message entirely on the uh, remaining points, and I'm sure you could think of others. Number five, and you know, to be pure in heart, is to apprehend that God is omnipresent, is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Psalm 139 talks about where can I go from your spirit or whither can I flee from thy presence? And he talks about heaven and hell and the sea and the farthest regions of the earth. I wonder if we apprehend that Jesus is omnipresent, if it would affect how we run our business, if we, it affect how we talk to people, it would affect how we use the Internet if we had a physical realization of the manifestation of and the spirit of Jesus being present all the time. Number six, to be pure in heart, is to fix my gaze upon Jesus, Hebrews 12 two. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I wonder if our life would be different if we assumed a discipline of just thinking of Jesus, in our lives two or three times a day to focus shift our our attention away from the physical reality to consider and acknowledge the presence of jesus and to fix our eyes spiritually on his face number seven to be pure in heart is to sustain my relationship with god as creator to acknowledge god as creator of everything that i see it's easy to do when we're in nature it's easy to do when we're when we see the beauty of creation but I wonder sometimes if we could alter our thinking to acknowledge God's presence in everything that we see that he has created well it's becoming my practice to end with a conclusion uh, conclude with a visual image and I Put a screen, a picture of the temple. This is the Jewish temple. Uh, It doesn't work really well because it's too small. So I'm gonna adapt that here for uh, this part of the discussion. And let's assume that this sanctuary is the Jewish temple. And out there are the outer courts, and in here, this is the holy place. And then over here in the holy place, we have the candle. The whole place is dark, there's no natural light in the room. And so, except for um, this, this candle, it's actually a menorah. It's consisting of seven candles. It's encased in gold and it sits over here. And that's the only light. That menorah is a picture of Jesus Christ who said, I am the light of the world. It's also the image borrowed by the apostle John in talking about the churches in Revelation. And then over here, we have the showbread. And the showbread was used by the priests in worship. And um, it was um, um, uh, the picture of Christ who said, I am the bread of life. And over here we have the altar where the sacrifices were made. And John who said, it's a picture of John who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right down here we have the altar of incense. And Revelation speaks to the the incense as being the prayers of the saints. So you have these these, uh, pieces, these devices that are thousands of years old, pointing to the Messiah. And right here at the steps, they have the veil. And it's a fairly thick thing, runs the whole uh, width of the sanctuary, and it separates the holy place from the holy of holies. The Holy of Holies was the place where the high priest would go in once a year to offer offer sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Jews now call it Yom Kippur, and it's a period of self-evaluation because they don't have a temple anymore. But the high priest would come in and offer sacrifice for himself, for the priests, for the tabernacle, and for the people. The legend has it that the Jews would tie a rope around his ankle because there was a certain prescribed way that he was supposed to do this, and if he did it wrong, God would smite him dead. And so they had this rope to pull him out of the holy of holies because nobody else could go in there. Kind of an interesting perspective. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, Matthew describes when Jesus died on the cross, that veil that existed between the holy place and the holy of holies was torn asunder from top to bottom. No easy feat. I wonder why Matthew included that passage. What what does it matter? What does it mean? What it means is that there was no longer a priest that stood between me and God. The writer of Hebrews says, come boldly. To the throne of grace, go boldly to the presence of God that you may obtain mercy and strength to help in time of need. It's an extraordinary change in our theology. The significance of the veil being torn in two is that it no longer requires a priest to enter the presence of a holy God. You and I are invited into. The Holy of Holies, not just once a year, and not just once a week when we come on Sundays. But God desires that we dwell there, that we live there. And when we do, we will be pure in heart, and we will see God. Amen. It's a big subject. Didn't have time to develop it as much as I would have liked. If you'd like to read more about it, I would recommend John Piper's book, Desiring God, which is a, which is a primer on being pure in heart. Also, J.I. Packer, Knowing God. This is another great book on the subject, and A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you once again for our salvation. We thank you for our existence that you created us and that you desire fellowship with us that you desire us to be more like you that you desire that we live in heaven with you things are too amazing and too wonderful at times for us to consider i pray lord that we would be a people a church that continues to pursue god that continues to pursue god in prayer and expressing love to one another that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.